Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3, 1 Kings chapter 3 if you would, and um, we are continuing this morning in this series called Paradox, where we've been walking through, uh, very intentionally walking through the footsteps of this uh, man named King Solomon, and as I shared last week, the reason for that title is King Solomon lived a paradox kind of life. Um, he was this man, remember, who's uh, really was granted this wisdom that, that became almost synonymous with the name Solomon. He loved the Lord fervently, as we learned, we're going to learn this morning. And yet, like so many of us, he struggled to maintain a consistency in his faith. And uh, so I've titled this morning's lesson, Headwaters. And I want to talk about how to guard against those places in life where we struggle with sin and compromise. So let's jump in. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to read verses one all the way through 15 of chapter three. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the life of King Solomon and uh, the many things that we learn by this written record of your word. Lord, we thank you uh, not for, just for his life, but Lord, for what you did in his life for the gospel that we see come alive in his story. And um, God, we know that each of us has our own story or that you are doing something in all of us, a, a story of, uh, of redemption, a story of bringing honor and praise to your name. And so Lord, we just pray, would you fix our eyes on the cross? Would you turn us to Jesus this morning as we, we read this word? God, such that you would change us Lord, that we would walk out of this place ready and more willing and more equipped to bring praise to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So 1 Kings chapter three, verses one through 15. Let's hear the word of the Lord. So Solomon made a marriage alliance with the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to come out or go in or go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? 
It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. It was somewhere in deep in the western Himalayas sits this vast glacier. And in the warmth of the summer months, drip by drip, this ice trickles into a stream that flows into India's northern plains. And as this stream merges with the many other streams, these headwaters soon become the largest, the third largest river, I should say, in the world. We know it as the Ganges River. And the Ganges River is this life source for more than 1.4 billion people across Nepal and into Bangladesh. And yet this river, worldwide famous, is also an ecological disaster. From the very headwaters of this river, there is this pollution that has turned pure glacial water into unimaginable sewage. It flows by factories and dump sites. It's used for bathing. And by the time this river hits the Bay of Bengal, it's the cause of health problems for millions. Its levels of arsenic and mercury are high, sky-high levels off the charts. And the question for decades has been why? Why can't the government set up some regulations to make that water pure again? One of the major obstacles standing in the way of, of, the, of the, the cleanup of this river is that the, the locals believe this river to be a god. And you would think that that might make them want to clean things up, right? Help this god out. But Hindus, instead, they believe this goddess, this river, has the power to clean itself. And I start with that story because what we find in our scripture this morning is the same kind of problem. It's subtle. It's just a trickle. Headwaters. But as you read through Solomon's life, you realize from the very beginning of his kingship, there is this seeping pollution that has the potential to wreak havoc in his kingdom. Look at how this begins. Look at this in verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. You know, at that time, a marriage alliance was quite typical, right? It was a very common way for a king to, to gain notoriety among the nations. This was, by the world standards, really foreign politics at its best. To intermarry with another kingdom gained you this political and this military might. And yet for Solomon, what I want to show you this morning is that this move compromised everything. He was playing by a different rule book. See, by the world standards, as I said, this would be typical for any king to walk through. These, 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 these marriage alliances were normal, but by God's standard, not so much. Let's just for starters think about this. What did Egypt represent to God's people? Egypt, remember, was the place of slavery. Slavery. 
It was this place of captivity for centuries, unimaginable trauma for generations. Egypt was the antithesis of Israel. It was a place of false worship, of idolatry, oppression, brutality. Just look at what God commanded his people in Deuteronomy 17 after their saga was over. Look at this. He said, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and you dwell in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, such as David or Solomon. One from among your brothers shall set as, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire horses, since the Lord your God has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And you shall not acquire many wives, lest your heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. See, this moment on Solomon's timeline, it's subtle, but this is precarious ground. God says, you shall never return that way that is Egypt. Again, stay away from foreign kings, stay away from the Egyptian horses, be cautious of your own gluttonous desire for power. So Solomon's first move on the chessboard is to marry Pharaoh's daughter. And in that one move, he brings Egypt home. A princess of the Egyptian kingdom now sits in the heart of the city of David. I want to point out a couple of unmistakable problems with, with this move. First, Solomon has now made himself unequally yoked to an unbeliever. In Exodus 34, God commanded his people to tear down the altars of the false gods, right? He said, have nothing to do with them or their idol worship. And yet Solomon's thinking, no, this isn't a biggie. It's just one woman. Kings do it. She has her faith. I have mine. It's just politics. But look at how this trickle soon becomes a river of pollution. We're going to read this later in our series. Look at this in 1 Kings 11. It says, now King Solomon, by this time now, loved many foreign women. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the, ab the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the, the ab abomination of the Ammonites. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. See, the problem here is not that Solomon marries a, a woman from a foreign land. The, the problem with this marriage is faith. Solomon has mixed his beliefs with a woman who wants nothing to do and has nothing in common with the Lord. So I think there's an important lesson here for us, um, especially for those of us who are single, maybe students, teens in the room, hear this out. Who you choose to do life with makes a massive difference in the trajectory of your path. I said this at Legacy after we talked about multiple couples with over 50 years of marriage under their belts and I saw a lot of heads nodding. Who you choose to do life with, who you make a lifelong covenant with, is a determining factor in the trail that will be your life. You know, still to this day, God has said to his people, it is not good for you to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Look at this in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? See, this is a paradoxical kind of place on Solomon's timeline, right? Solomon loved the Lord, our scripture tells us. He walked in the statutes of David. 
sacrificed thousands of animals in this pious worship. And yet he's now made his bed quite literally with a woman who will soon lead him astray. I think we have to be fair as we share this, this truth, right? That we live in a pluralistic time where the definition of family and the definition of marriage all around us is, has changed by the world's standards. And, and we know, you know maybe, maybe you're married right now to an unbeliever. Maybe your spouse had said they believe and now they don't. You're wondering what to do with that. Or maybe you didn't believe when you got married and now you do. Now I want to encourage us in this, right? The Bible is clear that though that is God's principle, if you find yourself in that situation, you should stay married. But also, in so doing, we should know that we need community more than ever because we're now yoked with an unbeliever. We need to be surrounded by those who are going to share Christ with us, who are going to lead us in the path of righteousness. You're now a witness to your spouse. But notice this. Um, it's not just that Solomon married the wrong gal. Uh, this isn't just about a woman. This is about power and politics. And the other problem with this move is that it reveals this trust complex in Solomon's heart. Love the Lord. Worship God fervently. And yet it's almost as if Solomon wants a backup plan. Just in case the Almighty God doesn't work out, um, I'm going to make an alliance with Egypt. And the irony here is Egypt is a kingdom with a history of his own people's downfall. Again, what's the lesson here? When do the means justify the end? You know, I think if we, if we consider our own lives and we think about our own paradox, we make these kind of, uh, what co one commentator called unholy alliances all the time. You know, a business partner wants you to do something you know is wrong, and you know that if you don't follow, it's going to get uncomfortable in the office. So you tell yourself, it's just a trickle. Or you know that if you make that investment, you could turn cents into dollars. But you also know that the company you're investing in fails to follow any of your convictions. It's just one investment. Teens in the room, hear me out. You, you just want to fit in. You know that if you just wear what they're wearing, or you just do what they're doing, maybe you will. But... Then what? You know, we see this in our politics all the time. We know our, our nation is in a tough place. Who will we as followers of Christ align with? Who will we vote for? And will their convictions align with ours? See, it's not just a trickle, right? Soon it becomes a river. And I feel like this is how compromise plays. This is, this is how temptation works. I think often of John Owen's quote in my life, he once said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. You know, I think at this point, this, this chapter really presses two questions. First, how do we keep these sinful trickles in check in our lives? And second, what is the solution to the pollution? See what I did there? What is the solution to the pollution? Because I'll tell you right now, I'm convinced the solution in guarding our lives from, from errors, from temptations, is not just trying harder. You can look back on your life and see that. The, the, the more you double down, the, the harder you try, the, the, often the harder you fall. See, sin has a way of compounding on us, of sneaking in on us. These, these streams of temptation soon become these raging rivers of pollution. And I want you to see this turn here that, that Solomon makes. Here's the paradox of Solomon. King Solomon, broken as he was, he comes to the Lord in worship of all things. 
And he comes to the Lord in worship in this place called Gideon. And while he's in this place, we really see four ways by which we can fend off compromise before it gets a foothold in our lives. Look at how this begins in 1 Kings 3, 4. Our lesson tells us Solomon went to make sacrifice to the Lord and he goes to worship. Remember, the, the, the high places um, in the Bible were, uh, were these places that were evil. The high places were up on these hillsides or these mountaintops. They were these places of widespread idol worship where God's people typically weren't supposed to go. Look at this in Deuteronomy 12. Moses said, You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, and on the high mountains and the hills and under every green trees. And Gibeon was that place. Second Chronicles tells us Solomon was up there doing the legitimate thing. He went into the, temple, or into the tent of the Lord to worship him. Look at this in verse 3 of that. Solomon and all the assembly with him went into the high place that was Gibeon, but he went into the tent of the meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. So imagine up on this hillside, there's all these gods being worshipped. Solomon walks right past them, goes into the tabernacle. He's made sacrifice and offerings that are really impossible to fathom, thousands of animals. And in this worship, God meets with them in a vision. Now I love this part, don't miss this. A broken man who made a foolish decision goes to worship a holy God, and God in his mercy meets him in that place. How often do we think I'm too far gone, I can't worship God? Or we hide in our shame like Adam and Eve thinking, man, I, I don't know if I can be before God's presence. And yet despite Solomon's blunder, despite his unmistakable mistake, God still meets in this place with his king. God keeps his covenant promises. And he says to Solomon, I'll give you anything you want. Now let's ponder this. Let's, let's really think about this. How is it that God gives a broken man such a generous offer? God comes to you, right? And he says, Ryan, you can have anything. All you have to do is ask me and it's yours. I would be so overwhelmed. Like, hmm, let's see, what do I want? Money, fame, success, power, pleasure, happiness, security. See, but if the Egyptian princess was a bad move, Solomon now, now makes the best move of his life. Look at this again in verse seven through nine. He says, you made your servant king, but I'm a child. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. This kingdom is far too populated for me to wrap my mind around. So God, I need you. I need you to give me an understanding mind that I might discern between good and evil. Let me translate that. Lord, give me wisdom. If you want to defeat the sinful temptations in your life, the trickles of compromise that soon become a river, here's how. Number one, worship him. Meet with him. See, if God is not a priority in your life, mark my words, something else will be. We are worshiping beings. We will find something else to worship. Apart from him, we will worship something or someone else every time. The starting point is to worship God, but when you do, here's the second point. Solomon confesses humbly that he's human. He says, I can't do this without you. He understands full well his weakness. Henry Worsley 
was an army commando for the British military and later was an Arctic explorer. And Henry was infatuated with conquering the South Pole. His hero was Ernest Shackleton. And he stole Ernest Shackleton's motto, which was, by endurance we conquer. But Henry was so obsessed with this mission that he refused to admit his own limitations. In his diary, he wrote multiple times, I will never, ever give in. Which at first is a respectful thing, right? I mean, you've got to respect the tenacity of that kind of a commitment. But Henry refused to admit his humanity. He pushed his limits so far that at one point his body literally broke out in this Arctic cold in the middle of this expedition. And by the time he decided to call for help, he died. One of the most challenging things I think for us to recognize is our limitations, our finitude. We all struggle with this, right? We have physical limitations, mental limitations, fleshly limitations. But the smartest move that Solomon ever made on this this chessboard that was his life was to admit to God, Lord, I'm a child. I don't know know if I'm coming or going. I'm a bit overwhelmed right now. See, and you realize these are the words of a king. This is one of the most powerful men in the world, right? Solomon was anything but a child at this point in his life. And yet he sounds like a lost sheep. I don't know the way into the pen. I don't know how to get out to the pasture. And I feel like so often in our own pride, we, we follow the opposite track of Solomon here, right? We, we think, man, I can do this life on my own. I can just bootstrap, double down, get over this, this sin issue in my life. But when it comes to our faith, it's got to be more than that. And we know this because the men, we just spent all weekend looking back on our lives and looking at those places where, oops, we dropped the ball. We know we're susceptible to sin. See, what God really desires for you and I is to confess, Lord, I can't do this day without you. I am a mess without you. I'm like a little child. I don't know if I'm coming or I'm going. See, the gospel, the story of the gospel is not, hey, look at how perfect my life is. The story of the gospel is not, hey, see how I have it all together. The gospel is, God, I am desperately lost without you. I have tried to justify myself. I have tried to build up my reputation to perfect my image. And yet you know everything about me. You see all. And therefore, Lord, I need you. How do you fend off the streams of temptation in your life? One, worship him. Two, confess your limitations. Three, ask God for wisdom. Solomon says to God, he says, I need a heart that's able to understand the difference between good and evil. Lord, I need your wisdom to cover me. You know what God's word promises us? Look at this in James 1.5. God's word tells us, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given them. How do we know that? How can we trust in that? If you lack wisdom, you ask God, and he'll give it to you. And yet we know all you have to do is begin spinning through this. All the wisdom of the world is found right here in the word of God. Look at this in Proverbs 4, 7. Look how Solomon says it. Remember, he's the one that wrote the Proverbs. He said, wisdom is supreme, so get wisdom. Whatever else you do, Get insight. 
See, wisdom is this gift of God that he wants to give to his people. Solomon says, it begins with the fear of the Lord, with understanding I am human, he is God. And if you ask it, you can have it. Open God's word, it's chock full. And yet that also means we have to humble ourselves and admit how much we need him. You know, we've all been through those difficult seasons of life, right, where you're not really sure if you're coming or you're going, where, where maybe there is a really tough decision ahead of you and you're not sure how to proceed. Here's a few questions that God might ask of you. Number one, have you met me in worship recently? Two, have you admitted your limitations? Three, have you opened up my word? Have you sought my counsel in Christian community? Have you asked me for wisdom? See, King Solomon makes this request, and like you can hear the crack of the bat. God says, Solomon, not only will I give you a wise and discerning mind unlike any other, but I'm gonna give you everything else you didn't ask for. Harkens me back to those words of Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else you need will be given to you. This part has me thinking, this last part. Solomon's given this, this gift of wisdom, presumably really on the spot, right? And what does he do? He now puts it into action. He leaves the high place of Gibeon, right? That's the place of the, the pagans. That's the idol worshiping kind of place. That's the temptation kind of place. And what does he do? He goes back to Jerusalem, the holy city, where God had said he would be worshiped among his people. And now standing before the Ark of the Covenant with this worship of burnt offerings we're told and peace offerings, he brings the sacrifice of praise to the Lord. See, wisdom is only as good as it is lived out. When we pray for wisdom, what we're acknowledging is our absolute dependence on the saving work of Christ. What we're acknowledging is all of us have this tendency to fall astray. And like Solomon, when we come to God in worship, when we confess our limitations, when we ask him for his wisdom, open his word and put it in faith in Jesus Christ, that's when we find our faith on solid ground again. You know, I know many men are here this morning from our week in retreat together, and I'd invite all of us to look back over your life and just think about those areas where you knew your actions and your faith didn't line up. We've all got them. And rather than trying harder this time, or rather than sitting in your own despair and regret, try those four things. Make a renewed commitment to worship God, not just on Sunday, but daily, weekly in prayer. And when you come to him, confess your limitations and your need for him. Ask him for wisdom, open his word, look for the blind spots. And then take whatever wisdom you've gained and be sure to put that faith in Jesus Christ in action. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your story. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your gospel and how it invades our lives. God, how you speak to us. God, we thank you for this story of you coming to a broken man in his imperfect worship in a shady place 
And Lord, by your grace and by your promise, Lord, giving Solomon wisdom unlike any other. And God, we just come to the same place. Lord, we, we come before you and we ask this morning that you would give us wisdom. We know that wisdom is found in Jesus Christ and so we turn to him. Lord, we confess we need you for our salvation. We need you to lead us in paths of righteousness tomorrow, to forgive us of our sins of yesterday. God, sometimes we don't know if we're coming or we're going, so Lord, give us insight. Give us wisdom. And God, would we put that wisdom, your word, into action in our lives. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.